Um, the title of this morning's message is The Holy Spirit Wants to Free You from Fear. The Holy Spirit Wants to Free You and I from Fear. And um, I got to tell you, when you read through the New Testament, you find very often that like one of the things that Jesus was constantly dealing with his disciples on is just fear and intimidation. Um, they found themselves fearful instead of faithful. They found themselves doubtful instead of courageous. And um, I feel like God's still wanting to do that for his people, that one of the things that the Holy Spirit does in our lives is to free us from fear if we'll partner with him and let him. And uh, fear has been a part of my life. I was a, I was a fearful kid. Um, some of you know the stories. I, I don't know what happened. Well, actually, I can trace it back to one Halloween night. We were moving from an apartment to a house, and I was buckled into the front seat of my dad's truck, and I remember vividly, like I can, vividly is when you remember really well. Okay, I remember vividly um, being strapped in to, I, I'm assuming it was a car seat, and uh, there was a, one of those guys in a really scary mask with like orange hair and like really creepy face, those rubberized ones, and uh, he jumped up on the hood of the truck and just went, ah! like that on all fours. And um, that was terrifying and uh, traumatized me for life, really. And so for the majority of my childhood, I had a real stronghold with fear, like fear gripped me, plagued me. Um, I, we, my parents made the huge mistake of letting us watch Rescue 911 uh, in the 90s with William Shatner. That was a big one. And uh, I was terrified that I was going to get kidnapped. Like every night I figured like somebody's coming through my window. I don't know what it is. I don't know who it is. Like but it's going to happen, and tonight's probably the night. Um, I, would I would stand at the edge of my doorway and run and jump on my bed because I didn't want the things underneath my bed to grab my ankles because um, they're there, and that's real. Um, and so I, I slept next to my parents' bed for like seven, eight, nine years old, like a long time, like multiple nights a week. I couldn't make it through the night. I felt like I can still remember times where I woke up terrified and like had like the image of a demon or uh, a Satan at the edge of my bed and all this crazy stuff. And these are memories that I have, right? And uh, I would take the trash out on trash day. And um, it was always night because I never did in the afternoon. And uh, it, we lived on a slope. And I remember like dropping the trash can out, running so fast, and then running back to the door and arching my back just to make it harder for somebody to swipe me and grab me. Like I was just like, oh, they can't get me if I arch my back. This is true stuff. You, you know it's true because of the details, right? I mean, this is real. We're, we're in therapy together. If there was a couch, I'd lay down. Um, but really, I mean, real struggle with fear. And my parents just begin to feed my mind and my heart with the word of God, right? Greater is he who is in me than he that is in the world. And I remember waking up at bed and sometimes couldn't even get the words out. But like, greater is he who is in me than he that is in the world. And sometimes I get angry. Greater is he who is in me. And then I kind of started acting uh, doing some drama stuff. So then I'd try it with different accents, you know, and I'd be like, right, was you? And it would kind of get my mind off of things. And so I, I had a stronghold of fear in my life. And I feel like for the enemy, this is one thing that the enemy loves to do for believers is to keep us bound by fear, gripped by fear, gripped by insecurities, gripped by anxieties. And if he can do that, he will keep us from fulfilling the plan that God has for our life. He, he may not keep us from heaven. How many of you know that's wonderful? And we get to experience eternity with Jesus. But there's so much of what he wants to do in the here and now before we get to heaven. And that is accomplished through continuing pursuit of freedom in our lives, that we would not be a fearful people, that we wouldn't be driven by fear, we wouldn't be motivated by fear. Uh, we'd have no fear in our lives. In fact, I think that one of the things that we need to understand is that the Holy Spirit never will speak to us 
with fear. Like that's not his language. That's the language of the enemy. So when fear and anxieties rise up in your heart, you don't have to wonder, well, is God trying to show me something? No, you can say that's coming from the enemy of your soul. And here's the thing. He's a sinister, slippy, slippery snake, right? He does not come to you with a pitchfork and a, and a, what is it, a, tri- a triton uh, or like pointy ears and a red tail. He comes to you and he sounds a lot like you, right? He sounds a lot like your mind and your emotions and your anxieties and all these things that we kind of excuse away, not recognizing the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy, and he uses your voice to destroy your life. And so I believe that God would have us be a free kind of people, the kind of people who aren't plagued by fear. Um, Paul is in prison, <coughs> and this was one of those passages that my, my parents had me memorize when I was a kid and use as a tool, a weapon against the enemy. Um, Paul was in prison, and he writes to Timothy, his kind of um, really the one he mentored and discipled. And he raised up Timothy as a young man, and he gives Timothy the church at Ephesus And there's a lot of problems. There's a lot of spiritual darkness and spiritual wickedness in the city of Ephesus. There's all kinds of things that go on in the church, and there's frustrations that happen and and spiritual uh, antagonism, spiritual warfare that's happening. And one of the things that Paul says to Timothy in another passage is, don't let anybody despise you because of your youth. So you get the sense that Timothy felt inadequate for the role that he had. He felt like he wasn't as equipped as he wished he were. Uh, Anybody ever feel that before, <laughs> that you wish you were more equipped, you wish you were better, uh, you, you wish you could do a better job, you wish you had more insight or more wisdom or more of the Spirit of God in your life. You just wish, 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 whether it's being a mom or a dad or uh, being a worker or a, a worker for the Lord or a worker as an employee, a business owner, you just wish you had more to give. And I get the sense that Timothy had some of those insecurities that were at play in his life. Paul writes to him in prison, it's going to be his last letter that he writes to Timothy, Um, one of his last four letters before he's executed. And he says this, Therefore I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Verse 7, For God has not given you a spirit of fear, but of power, of love, and of a sound mind. God has not given you a spirit of fear, but of power, of love, and a sound mind. And stir up the gift of God on the inside of you. And I feel like one of my roles as a pastor for us when we gather is to get us stirred up that God has more for us than we're currently experiencing. Um, I did something crazy this week, and I'm not sure exactly why. I haven't had beef stew in two years, but I picked a 100-degree day, and I decided my family needs beef stew. And uh, I'm not even kidding. I, we, we had some beef in the freezer. We thawed it out, and we made, I made a pot of beef stew big enough, and not one person in my family has had, that was four days ago, not one person in my family has had any. And I've turned the air conditioner down really low to like simulate wintertime, and uh, it's still not working. But one of the things that you know when you cook a, a, a stew is when you want to do a thickening agent, if you don't stir it as you're mixing it in um, to thicken the, the broth or whatever, then you'll find that it'll settle on the bottom and it'll burn. And if you're not careful and you scrape the bottom of that pot, all the ladies are like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Then they're like, I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, no, I know, just kidding. Um, if you scrape the bottom of that pot, uh, the, the black stuff will come up and it'll ruin your whole pot of stew. When I hear this passage, stir up the gift of God within you, I get that picture in my mind and in my heart that there are things that are inside of us, that the ingredients in our life are, are present, but something about Sunday mornings and coming together as the people of God is the Holy Spirit saying, it's time to stir up that stuff. There should be, and it's not to just get excited for excited sake. How many of you know hype is, hype is fleeting, right? I, I mean, I can get a 
Trust me, I can get a room hyped up, right? But that comes and goes, you know? What really God's wanting us to do is approach Sunday mornings, approach worship, approach his presence by saying, God, stir up in me like this desire and this hunger for more of you. And this can happen just being around other believers, inviting people to pray for you and allowing a little bit of their enthusiasm, a little bit of their passion, a little bit of their spirit to rub off on you. And so I hope you leave today stirred up for what God has for you, stirred up for more of his presence, stirred up for deeper levels of freedom from fear. Verse seven says, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love, power, and a sound mind. You know, that's interesting. I think the spirit of fear uh, conquers our effectiveness as believers. And it does this uh, really in, in, I see, three ways. You have fear, and the sp- God hasn't given us that spirit, but instead he's given us the Holy Spirit, which in this passage is represented by kind of three spiritual attitudes, love, power, and a sound mind. Love, power, and sound-mindedness. Not confusion, not desperation, not anxiety, but sound-mindedness, a peace that passes all understanding. Not powerlessness, but power. Not hatred or anxiety or bitterness or rudeness or uh, push people away, but love, true love, genuine love, the kind of love that is unconditional, the kind of love that says, even if somebody treats me a certain way, doesn't mean I have to respond in kind. I can respond in a different way because God's given me a love and it's not my love. It's not something I've conjured up. It's something that the Holy Spirit has birthed in me. So it's a deeper, more passionate, more real kind of love. And it's interesting that it takes, you know, I mean, not that it takes, but that fear can rob you of all three of those attitudes. And that if we don't, if we're not careful, we'll find ourselves operating out of a spirit of fear instead of operating out of a spirit of love, power, and a sound mind, even as believers, So even though as we serve the Lord, we'll find ourselves in conversations and the way we interact with people and the way we're pursuing God, even from a place of, I don't uh, fear, like I don't want to do the wrong thing or I don't want to be perceived wrong or I want to fit in. I want to be a part of my, uh, I want to be held in a good light within my spiritual community. I want people to think well of me, not realizing that those are the same kinds of anxieties and fears that are the native language of the enemy, not the Holy Spirit. He wants us to be a free kind of people, not motivated by fear, but living in a spirit of love, power, and sound-mindedness that his Holy Spirit produces in our life. It's interesting, you know, it would make sermons so much easier if I didn't have to present in a loving way, right? Like some people just tell us the truth. Well, the truth is, you know what? Turn or burn, baby. You know what? You're all going to hell without Jesus, and how many know, has that message worked throughout the generations? Has that produced a, a gracious, godly, um, forward-moving, inspired, passionate group of believers? No, but it's been the message of the church in different times at different places, even still today in some circles. That the message is like, you're going to hell, you better be afraid, turn or burn, baby. God's watching you. And if you don't make, if you don't make it, if you don't change your ways, you're in trouble. The Bible says that it's the kindness of God that leads men to repentance. The kindness of God. When I see Jesus on the cross and when he's he's passionately giving up his life, what does he say? He says, I can call down legions of angels right now and I can use my authority to get you to comply. But he's not looking for that. He's not looking for your compliance. He's looking for your want to. 
He's looking for your affection. He's looking to woo your heart, much like a, a man would woo a woman he's dating. Not you guys, though. You're too young. But a man would woo a woman that he's dating, right? Like he would pursue her in flowers and candies and gifts and love and kind words and affections and sweet texts because he's trying to win her heart. And I see Jesus on the cross pouring out his life for you and I saying, I'm just trying to win people's hearts. And there's something that's supposed to happen inside of us that says, a God like that willing to give up his life for me when he didn't have to, when he could have come with assertion and asserted and demanded by his authority our compliance, he chooses to go a different route. What is he saying about us? He's saying, I don't operate in the realm of fear. I'm not going to fear you into the kingdom. I'm not going to fear you into heaven. What I'm going to do is I'm going to woo you into my presence. I'm going to compel you. I'm going to call you. I'm going to be kind to you. I'm going to love you into the kingdom of God. And he does that over and over and over again. And he invites us to do the same with the people around us. The spirit of fear conquers the effectiveness of the believer in these three ways. The first of all is that fear creates a sense of powerlessness in us. Fear creates a sense of powerlessness. So don't be ruled by the spirit of fear, but, be, but have the Holy Spirit love, power, and a sound mind. Listen, when we're ruled by fear, we don't feel like we're in control. We're just waiting on God to do everything, not realizing we're the answer to many of our prayers. That many of the frustrations that we're currently facing are really our own doing, having been ruled by fear and having lived a life based in fear and having been afraid of the decisions that we could make or would make or what we would think or what people would, would do or how things would turn out or if God would really come through if I stepped out in faith. God said, I don't want you to be ruled that way. I want you to be a person who has the power of the living God inside of you. I love what Paul says. I believe it's Colossians 1.8. Should have looked it up between the services. I didn't come to give you a gospel of words, but a gospel of power and demonstration. That's what Paul says. I, Paul could have given us a gospel of words, but he doesn't. He says, I came to give you a gospel that had power to it, that had some teeth to it, that when you pursued freedom, freedom happened. When you pursued to power, power happened in your life. Love happened in your life, and it's not your own making. It's the Holy Spirit on the inside of you, which I have given to every believer. believer. Powerless to change my situation, powerless to fight, powerless to raise up a standard against the enemy. That's what fear does to us. It creates powerlessness in us. And powerlessness leads to lethargy, complacency, and ultimately us rejecting God, turning our back on Him, turning towards sins that satisfy for a moment but have no lasting value in our life. Fear robs us of the ability to love genuinely by creating a self-protective focus. See, what happens is when I am ruled by fear then I'm always constantly uh, trying to figure out where I fit in the world and what I'm perceived like, and I'm very self-protective. I'm very enclosed. I'm looking at what perceptions are and uh, what will happen, and I, I'm, just, I'm in my own bubble and I'm in my own head. And I'm telling you, you may feel like you can really love, but you have a finite amount of love when you're ruled that way. When you're constantly wondering about where you fit in the world and you're ruled by insecurities, it's really hard to genuinely love with any kind of Holy Spirit love, that unconditional stuff, that love that says, I don't care what you do to me, I'm not going to respond in kind. 
I don't care what your attitude is like towards me. I don't care what I perceive happening or what I perceive your motivation to be. Man, I am so loved by God. I am so full in him that I've got nothing but love to give to you. And I'm telling you, that kind of love, that changes the whole world. That changes people because they recognize, and they may never say it, but they recognize you love me and you really shouldn't have. I did not deserve that. And it may take them five years, 10 years, or all of eternity for the real hard-headed ones, as such were some of us, right? Uh, it may take them all of eternity to figure out that you actually presented to them love and actually cared for them with a love that was beyond yourself. If I'm living in fear, I'm living in survival mode, constantly looking out for myself to make sure I get what I need. I can't genuinely care for others if I'm living under the rule of fear. I live with a scarcity mentality when I'm under the control of fear. Like, I'm just trying to get enough for me. I'm just trying to feel good enough for me. I'm just trying to be affirmed enough to feel good about myself, right? And, and, and to the thought of being able to give, that, that seems so far out there that I would have something to give that's beyond myself because I'm so filled up by the person and presence of Jesus and I'm so free from the control of fear that I have his love to give to the world around me. The scarcity mentality is, it's like this. It's like, you know, a person who has a hard time providing food for themselves and you say, can you feed all the homeless people on your block? It's like, I, I, I'm trying to feed my kids. That's a hard ask. When somebody's trying to feed their kids, but you say, you know, you, what you really need to do is you need to feed other people first. It's a scarcity mentality. It's like, I'm just trying to get enough for me so that my needs are met. And how many of you pray this prayer? Lord, I don't need to be rich. I just, I just want my needs met. And I've prayed that prayer before, but how many know if my needs are the only ones that are met, how can I meet anybody else's? If I only pray and ask the Lord, just meet my needs, then there's not enough in my cup that overflows to the world around me. So it's not enough to just experience the love of God. You want to say, God, I want so much of your love, and I want to be so firm and confirmed in who I am as a person before you that I have an overflowing abundance to give to the world around me. It's an interesting thought. It's like we come into the house of the Lord, and we come into friendships, and there is something true to be said that I don't need anything from you, though I need something from you. Like, I'm here to give as much as I do need to receive. But it's so funny, when you become the answer to your own prayer requests, how that reciprocal thing happens in the kingdom, that I, when, when I go to serve, all of a sudden I find myself being served. When I go to give, I find myself living in abundance. When I go to surrender, I find that I haven't surrendered anything, I've gained everything, right? This is the way the kingdom works. It's a kingdom of opposites that calls us into living beyond ourselves and living for the kingdom and for the people around us. Fear robs us of clarity and reality by creating confusion in our mind. Notice what the Holy Spirit wants to produce in us as an antithesis to fear is what? Sound-mindedness. He wants to produce in us a sound mind. That's one of his gifts. So fear and a spirit of fear would rob us from a sound mind. Has anybody ever faced a situation that fear and anxiety and you just couldn't get off of it, right? Like, I mean, you just ruminated and talked about it and got all nasty about it and aggressive about it. And sometimes you just need to go on the neighborhood and talk to yourself about it. And yeah, they did do that. And they are against you. And oh yeah, you got to get them, let them have it. I mean, you just kind of create and you recycle and recycle and regurgitate and regurgitate all the worst possible scenarios. Listen, in that moment, you're being ruled by fear. 
And the Holy Spirit says, I have something better for you. I have sound-mindedness for you. That you don't have to live in confusion. You don't have to live in anxiety. You don't have to live in doubt. You don't have to live in depression. I've called you into sound-mindedness. We can't think straight when we are afraid. And here's the thing, we forget our priorities. They've done like, you've probably read stories and articles about hikers and hunters and people in the wilderness who they stopped drinking water and they find that found themselves lost and afraid and maybe their body or maybe in some cases they were rescued and it's like they were 200 yards from their vehicle. They were 200 yards from the trailer, the trail. They were 40 feet away from rescue. This happens a lot in like the wintertime climates in like Alaska. It's like they couldn't see and there's confusion that happens and they can't even find their way 40 feet to their cabin, which would have been their rescue, would have meant their life, but they died 40 feet away from rescue. This is what happens so often when we are ruled by fear is we get confused and we fail to see with right perspective that God has something so much better for us than living that way. The second passage of scripture that I want to look at today is um, really the story of Gideon, and it's in Judges chapter 6. It's a picture of the people of God, and it's really, a, I, I think it's very fitting because it's also a picture of you and I. You know, we're living with an ele- a, a, a version and, a, and like a down payment of the promises of God. And in, in Judges, that's what the people find themselves in. They're in the promised land that God had promised to Abraham. They've, they've gone through the desert, 40 years in the wilderness. They've conquered cities to inhabit the promised land. They've come out of 400 years of slavery with the Egyptians. I mean, they're doing pretty good, but there's still more that God has for them. And so this picture of the people of God, they're in the land that God has promised, but they're not fully living in the joy of the land. They made it out of Egypt, out of the wilderness, out of so many generational curses, but they find themselves worshiping other gods at this point. They begin to worship other gods, and you know, when you start down a road of disobedience, how you know, all sorts of terrible things are on their way, right? They begin to worshiping other gods, and they find themselves completely confused, erecting idols and adopting the culture of the inhabitants they were supposed to destroy, They find themselves living just like them. And at this point, instead of living in the land and enjoying it, they've actually dug out holes in the mountainside where when the Amalekites and the Midianites come, the bad guys, they just, instead of fighting for this land, they just like, retreat! (laughs) Ding, 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 ding. And so they've taught their kids to run. We run and we run to the hiding places. We run to the caves and we run to the holes and we hide until the Midianites and the Amalekites maybe every couple of months, every season, right at harvest time, they've taken all our food, they've taken all our goats, they've taken all our donkeys, all our sheep, all our corn, I don't know if corn was a big thing, they've taken all our wheat, they've taken everything, the figs, that was big, dates, it's all gone, olive oil's gone, they've taken everything, and then they come back in and they kind of circle like, how can we rebuild? And this is happening year after year after year. Instead of enjoying the promised land that God had given them, they're running to the hills terrified and living in caves, and not in the land. They only come down to the land for uh, brief moments. And in Judges 6, chapter 10, uh, this is what the Lord, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. I want to say this. Anytime you're being ruled by fear, maybe you'll need to bring some other brothers and sisters around you in Christ to help you see it, but there's probably an area in your life where you have not obeyed the voice of God. Whenever fear begins to creep into your heart, whenever you feel controlled, whenever you feel powerless or like you can't love or like your mind's confused, there's probably an area in your life where you're not in obedience to God out of love for him. 
not out of his desire for your compliance, but out of his desire for you to live into the fullness of what he's called you to. And I've found that when you deal with the place of disobedience, oftentimes the breakthrough is right on its heels. That right after that place of disobedience is taken care of and right after you've presented your life to God and you've made things right, my goodness, he comes in with the blessing and the benefits of living in his promise. So that's what he's saying here. You haven't obeyed my voice and yet I've given you this land and now you're terrified to even live in the land that I gave you. James 4, 7 says this, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Most of the bondage in our lives is actually rooted in some area of disobedience. And resisting the devil is all about obedience. It's all about saying, I'm not going to be ruled by these things that the enemy tries to captivate my mind and my heart with. I'm not going to be ruled. I'm going to resist temptation. I'm going to resist the enemy. Judges 6, 11 through 16 is where I want to read. And it's just this brief moment in Gideon's life. There's, it's a great long story that you should read on your own. But it says this, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree at Oprah, which belonged to Joash the Abyssalite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. So here's Gideon. Gideon has grown up in this culture that has said, even though God promised us the land, and even though it's our inheritance, we run up into the mountains and we hide in the caves when the bad guys come. We don't fight. I mean, we don't fight. We tried that once. We don't fight anymore. This is not the Joshua Caleb generation. I think Caleb Mad Dog, right? Like that, that was his name, Mad Dog, right? He was just like, where at 98 years old, where are they at? I'll take them down, you know? <laughs> Sorry, that was very mockery. Um, but he was like ready to fight, you know, wanted to take those cities, wanted to battle. That's not the generation they're in. They're in the generation of like, I don't know, like fighting, you know, the caves are really nice this time of year, you know? And and they leave us a little bit of our crops, and there's a couple of goats running around after they come through, so let's just stick to the cave plan. Let's run. Gideon finds himself in a wine press, hiding from the Midianites, hiding from the Amalekites, terrified. He's threshing wheat, which the whole idea behind threshing wheat is you, you throw it up, and it, the wind blows, and it separates, so it's really hard to do when you're in an enclosed, hidden space. But he's terrified, and the angel of the Lord comes to him because God is wanting to do something new, for a new generation. He's wanting to break this cycle that says we can be saved or we're in the promised land in their case, but we have none of the benefits of the promised land. How many know that we can be saved and we can have none of the benefits of salvation except for heaven, which is a great, but I'd say heaven is a fringe benefit. It's like one that you just tags along with you that you don't even know you have until, well, you really need it, you know, and you only need it once because <laughs> it's forever. Um, and you don't need it until the last moment of your last breath. But there's a whole bunch of benefits on this side of your last breath that you really need to be effective, to make a difference, to be whole, to be free, to be the full person that God's called you to be. And that's what we're talking about. That's what the angel of the Lord comes to Gideon and he says, listen, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. There was nothing to indicate the truth of this statement in Gideon's life. Nothing to indicate that the Lord was with him, nothing to indicate that he was mighty, and nothing to indicate that he had any level of valor in his life. He's hiding, but what does the angel of the Lord say? The Lord is with you, a mighty man of valor. 
calls prophetically to who God always made him to be, not who he is. And God does the same thing to you and the same thing for me. He speaks prophetically to your life and say, I've called you to peace. You are a peace-filled person. You're a person with a sound mind, full of love and power and authority. You, you, you are a conqueror. You're an overcomer. You're the head and not the tail, the beginning and not the end. God, I have a plan for your life and a purpose and a destiny for you. And it's not too late and it's not over and you're not too broken to see it through. God speaks to who you really are. And who you really are does not look like who you actually are today because he calls forth something new, something brand new, and he does it prophetically for each and every one of us. And Gideon said to him, Gideon brings the angel back down to reality or tries to attempt to, and he says, please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? Oh, Gideon, mighty man of valor. And Gideon's first response is, I'm going to go ahead and issue my complaint now. Here it is. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah, you're with me? Oh, yeah, I'm mighty? Oh, yeah, you see valor in my life? Then why does my life look like this? Why is this the circumstance that I'm living in? And Gideon said, please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all the wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt, but now the Lord has forsaken us and given us the into the hand of the Midianites? And the Lord turned to him and said, and here's what I love. You know, the Lord does not address his complaint. He just goes right back to the prophetic statements about his life. He says, go in this night of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? That's the Lord's response. Do I, I'm, I'm sending you. Go. And Gideon, I mean, it's one of those moments, you ever have that when you're, like in a crowded room and like a little kid's like looking at you like he might think you're daddy, okay? And it's like, you know, I'm not your daddy, kid. You know, like, who's your, looking around like, are you talking to me? <laughs> That's the moment. That's what I feel like Gideon must have done here. It's like, are you talking to me? Are you sure? And he said to him, please, Lord, how am I supposed to save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. I love Gideon's response because it's so real, but it's only half real. It's only half real. He says, I'm the weakest in my clan and the weakest in my father's house. And what he's saying is a truth. He's saying, how could you use me? But it's only half the truth. It's not the whole truth. And that's one of the things that fear will cause to happen in our lives is we will find ourselves over and over and over again, again, believing half of the story. You're not good enough. You're broken. Your past is jacked up. If they only knew what you've done. I mean, we only believe half the story and we believe that and then fear rules our hearts. Listen, God factored in your brokenness before he called you into his kingdom. He already factored it in. He knows you're not enough. You know, I, I, I say this often, but it's so true. I'm not the pastor because I'm the most qualified. I'm the only one who said yes. You know, I'm the, I mean, for real. Like, I'm not, I am, there are issues, like, if I were Gideon, I'd say, but God, I'm a hot mess, and I come from a family of hot messes, and we are of the clan of the hot messness. Like, <laughs> 
It doesn't sound as fancy as Manasseh, but it's a hot mess, right? I don't know what you see. I don't know what you're trying to do, but God's not looking for half the story. He's looking for the whole story. And he wants you to respond with the whole story. And what he says to Gideon is maybe the first time in Gideon's life that he heard the other half of the story. Oh, mighty man of valor. I'm with you. I'm sending you. You're everything that you're supposed to be. And instead of being able to process that, you don't understand. Manasseh. M-A-N-N, I don't know how to spell it, but Manasseh, you forgot who you're calling. You forgot. I'm from the least of the tribes, and I'm the least. In that tribe, there's a family, and it's the least family in the tribe that's also the least tribe, and I'm in that family, and within that family, there are some least, and I'm the least in that family. Like, you haven't just called the least. You've called the least of the least of the least of the least. least. He's trying to convince the angel of the Lord, you got it wrong, bro. You don't have it right. I'm not. And it's like, because you don't believe the other half of the story. And the other half of the story is you're fully called. You're fully loved. You have, God has a plan for your life that's not rooted in your half, the half that you know. It's rooted in the half that he knows, which is I loved you enough to die for you. I loved you enough to set you free. And if you want to be free from fear ruling your life, you've got to stop believing your half of the story. And you got to get really grounded in the whole story because the whole picture, it's a beautiful one. The whole picture is you're free and, and you're whole and you have a spirit of love, power, and a sound mind. And it's your birthright from heaven. Don't settle for anything less. Resist the, t- the temptation to believe the devil's half-truths about your life. And here's the thing. I have found that in my life, the best way for me to resist this temptation to only believe my half of the story or the enemy's half of the story has been when I get people around me who are telling me God's half of the story. Because even though I know it in my head, it's when I hear it from somebody else that my heart gets stirred up. And I find myself filled with the Holy Spirit in such a way that I start to actually believe that God might have made room for my weaknesses when he called me. And he may still want to do something in my life, even though I don't know what he sees. God wants you to not be ruled by fear. Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that your fathers recounted to us, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us from, given, and did, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. Listen, the f- third thing is this. God plus you equals everything you need to overcome fear. God plus you is everything you need to overcome fear. Listen three times. The Lord is with you. Do not I send you. I will be with you. You know, when we come to worship, I uh, said it jokingly in the first service, but I worship on the front row. I do that for a reason. I do that for a reason because I am so convinced of the truth of this that the worship is not the thing that we do before the sermon. You know, some people in our culture are like, give me the meat. I just don't want, you know, so much singing. I've actually heard that, so much singing. We have, uh, we've had a couple people in the past, as I said, like, we, I come after the worship. <laughs> like, I come after the worship, and it's like, well, I mean, you're kind of missing the point, right? Like, I mean, I get that, that we have songs and there's preferences, but 
the point of worship is not the songs we sing before we get to the good stuff, right? Or before we really see God do the transformative work. Worship is where we invite the presence of God into our life. The reason I stand on the front row and close my eyes and lift my hands up, and especially at the 9 a.m., I don't even look back. Like I, you know, because when I look back, I'm usually looking like, how many people came today? I don't really know, but I'm super insecure. You know, like that's really the song I'm singing in my heart. I just want to see. And so I usually, you know, force myself not to look behind me because that's rooted in fear. That's rooted in my own insecurities. That's rooted in like, I, I need the presence of God to make up the difference no matter how many people are in the room. Like, I need the presence of God to be here regardless because what I bring to the table is my half. And we talked about my half, right? My half is a hot mess from the tribe of the hot messes. My half is not good enough to do anything good in the kingdom. But it is, it is necessary, it is necessary. We don't demean it too much. But when I bring my half and then I cry out to God in worship for his half to be made manifest in my life, man, that's where there's power. When you come to church on Sunday mornings and we sing these songs, yes, love the songs. Have your favorite. That, that's wonderful. But when, if it doesn't matter if the people are on key or anything like that, that's where you're crying out to God to make up the difference. God, show me your half of the story because I know my half and it's not enough. It's not enough to keep this marriage together. My half isn't enough to keep my kids on track. My half isn't enough to keep the church going. My half's not enough to keep my job. My half's not enough to make those sales. My half's not enough to do anything. Lord, my half is not enough. And there is so much power when we recognize our half and his half in an appropriate way. And we say, I'll do my part, but God, I'm gonna cry out for you to do yours. And I'm telling you, that is the power alley of being a spirit-filled believer. That's the power alley. That's the sweet spot is when you do everything that you can do, but then you rely on him to do everything that he can do. And when you get those two things right in your worship time, when you get those two things right, when you approach God on a Sunday morning or in your own quiet time with the Lord, stuff begins to happen because you're not being ruled by fear. You're being ruled by faith. Let your understanding of God's presence overwhelm any fear you face. This is why we seek the presence of God in worship. I want to invite the worship team to come on up. Ezekiel 37, 14 is where I want to close us with. And it's this. And it says, And I will put my spirit within them, and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord, and I have spoken. And I will do it, declares the Lord. And we've talked a lot about the Holy Spirit. There's actually week seven on the Holy Spirit. Talk a lot about this. And it's, it's God's dream. That's why we've talked so much about it. His dream was what Ezekiel saw happening, that there would be a day where this wouldn't just be a religion of do's and don'ts. This wouldn't just be about people mustering up their own willpower to be faithful, good Christians, that there would be a day where the Holy Spirit would dwell in people and his word would be in us. And there would be a person of the Trinity right here on the inside, moving and directing and guiding and freeing us. God has not given us a spirit of fear because he's given us a spirit named the Holy Spirit who's producing love, power, and sound-mindedness in us every time we cry out and say, God, your half is what I need. Lord, I, I need more of you. 
when we read this prophecy in Ezekiel, I will put my spirit within you. This was the cry of the prophets. This was the dream of the generations, that there would be a group of people coming who would be able to worship God in spirit and in truth, knowing and understanding because he dwelled on the inside of them. And that's what you and I have access to when we come into the presence of God. I want us to stand and we're going to close in prayer.